Okay. So Talia, would you mind reading? I'll just move this out of the way. So Talia will read the, the reading from Ephesians. Apologies if I mispronounce anything. Um, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles who also heard the, tr- heard the truth, <laughs> the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give you the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we could praise and glorify him. Thanks, Talia. So that's a... Uh... Um, nice passage nice and mysterious Um, and it's the beginning of our passage on uh, series on the book of Ephesians so to properly understand what we're reading we need to answer the following questions. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Who was it written for? Why was it written? When was it written? And what sort of book is it? In other words, what's its literary genre? The author of Ephesians was the Apostle Paul, author of many of the other letters in the New Testament. Ephesians was most likely written at the same time as Colossians and Philemon and sent via Tychicus, who's mentioned in Ephesians 6.21 as well as in Colossians and Philemon, probably during Paul's imprisonment in Rome from AD 60 to 62. Most scholars agree that Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus, big surprise, who Paul had earlier spent two years with and that the lack of personal greetings in Ephesians is actually because there were too many people to single out. Many believe that Ephesians was written in a way to encourage, along with other churches in the region, remember this region is uh, Asia Minor, now Turkey, which we're familiar with from the letters to the churches in Revelation, if you've been doing our study in Revelation. And, uh, and so it was written to Ephesians and to these other churches. And finally, Ephesians seems to have been written 
as an encouragement to the church to grow to the next level. Um, Paul talks a lot about reconciliation and love in the letter, and it presents a powerful vision of the, ch- of the church at work in the transformation of the world. So that's Ephesians. Now I'm going to skip Paul's greetings in verses 1 and 2, which are pretty standard, and dive right into the first section of the letter, where Paul unpacks this range of spiritual blessings from God. Uh, This section from verse 3 here, all the way to verse 14, everything that Talia just read is in the original Greek, one sentence, one very long and complex sentence. Because of this complexity, there are various ways that it can be interpreted into English or any other language. And you'll notice that different English translations will give subtly different interpretations in this passage. So I'll mostly be using the ESV, which sort of gives an interpretation that's as open as possible, that itself can be interpreted in multiple ways. Now, here in verse 3, Paul introduces his subject, God and his spiritual blessings. Before we can go any further, I'm going to have to understand a word here that often confuses me, and I'm guessing it will probably have confused some of you too, and that is the word bless or blessing. You can see in this verse that Paul is blessing God and saying that God has blessed us. Now, I can understand how God can bless us, But how can we bless God? What does God not have that we can provide him with? As it turns out, nothing. When the Bible actually talks about blessing God, or God being blessed, it is recognizing all the good things that God both is and possesses. So to say, God Almighty, blessed be he, is to make a statement about God's goodness and greatness. In contrast, when human beings are blessed, either by God or by another person, there's a transfer or a request for a transfer of good things from God to human beings. So if I say, bless you, I'm saying, I pray that my good God, abounding in good things, We'll grant some of those good things to you. So next time you respond to somebody's sneeze, remember that. It's the opposite of cursing someone. So God is blessed because of what he already has. We're blessed in order to receive good things from God. Make sense? Now, Paul is talking about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are spiritual blessings? Remember the blesses and curses for Israel in Deuteronomy? Since Israel was a physical kingdom, they were promised physical blessings, and they received them, some of them. But the kingdom of God, the the kingdom that we're members of, is a spiritual kingdom. So we receive spiritual blessings. Ultimately, As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, we will receive a spiritual body. 
and that body will then dwell with God. But Paul is here in this passage in Ephesians talking about the spiritual blessings that we receive now or have already received, not the spiritual blessings of the future life. So what are these blessings that we receive here and now? Well, let's keep reading. The first blessing, the first several blessings are actually from God the Father. The first part of Paul's long sentence of praise refers to the work of the Father. And that's here in verses 4 to 6. And there are probably two blessings in this. The first blessing is that we were chosen by God to be holy and blameless before him. In other words, God chose us in order to set us apart. That's what holy means. And cleanse us of our sins. Eventually, that's the lifelong process of sanctification. Transforming us into people who agree wholeheartedly with God's purposes. But what's this stuff about God having chosen us before the foundation of the world? Well, this refers to God, God's eternal plan for us. Even before the world was created, before time existed, he'd already chosen us to be his people, to stand in his presence. People often ask the question, would you still be a Christian if you'd been born into a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist society or house? And the answer to that, according to Paul, is yes, of course, because God chose me from before the creation of the world. So our status in God is based on his choice. And God's not fickle. He doesn't change his mind. Now, of course, you may wonder how this fits in with our own choice. Doesn't our response to God in faith matter? Well, yes, it does. In fact, in this same sentence, which is a whole bunch of verses long, down in verse 13, Paul explains how our choice is something the Holy Spirit waits on. We'll talk a little bit more about that. We need to hold these two perspectives in tension, our choice and God's choice. And it continues into the next blessing. But, but just be sure, God chose us. In verse 5, we read that God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I think we all understand that, right? No, let's, let's work through it a little more carefully. <laughs> let's finish our discussion of God's will and ours. Here we learn that God predestined us for adoption. Predestined is actually just another way of saying that God lovingly decided this before the beginning of time. I should point out that God doesn't just randomly choose people. He doesn't go through the human race going... Christian, non-Christian, Christian, non-Christian, Christian, non-Christian. God adopts us because he wants to, because he's chosen us personally. So somehow we hold that intention with our choice. But what does it mean to be adopted by God? Under Roman law, familiar to Paul and the Ephesians, the father of a household had 
absolute power. He owned even the lives of his family. He could kill one of them and not be guilty of murder. So to adopt someone required their natural father to sell them, sort of like you'd sell a slave, not once, but three times, because that ownership was so powerful. The third sale would signal a final break and the adopted child would then become the legal child of the adopting father with the exact status as a natural child. So when we're adopted into God's family, we cease to be Satan's possession because Satan's our natural father and we become God's possession. We have the same status as far as possible as the natural son of the family, Jesus. How amazing is that? We'll enjoy heaven and earth with God forever as part of the divine family, not just creatures. When we think about our Christianity as just a worldview or a perspective or a Sunday afternoon activity, we're completely forgetting this massive universal importance of our status as the children of the God of everything. It's just amazing. So, we're adopted. We're actually going to reign with Christ, as it says in Revelation 3.21. We'll sit on the throne with him. How incredible is that? So this section, this is the section about God the Father, concludes with the purpose of these blessings, to glorify God. God's incredible mercy and generosity in choosing to adopt these creatures, us, who've turned away from him, to adopt us into the family of the Trinity, can only result in praise for him, as found Of course, in the scenes of heaven in the book of Revelation, where the angels just keep on praising God. So that praise then moves us into the second section of Paul's whole peon of praise, the section about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And immediately we read that Christ redeemed us through his blood, gives us our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This incredible gift of redemption is the third spiritual blessing. And Jesus' death on the cross, paying the price that that should have been paid by us for our rebellion against God, this is what allows us to stand before God. This is what allows us to be adopted. Jesus is the way through which we can come to the Father. Without Jesus' blood, we're trapped in our rebellion. We don't even look for God. None of us even seek for God. It's hard for us to understand the significance of Jesus' sacrifice. We're so used to buying things with money that the idea of buying something with blood is completely foreign to us. The only inkling our society has of that freedom is perhaps the 
society. The only inkling our society has of that is perhaps the freedom that soldiers have bought for us by their blood. But but this is such a pale, pale imitation of Jesus' work. Soldiers have their own selfish motives. They don't really know that they're going to die when they go to war. In fact, they'd rather lay down the enemy's lives than their own. That's what they go to war to do. But Jesus, Jesus became a human being and came to earth with the full intention and knowledge that he was going to die for us. That's love. Now, because we're adopted and we're joint heirs with Christ, shouldn't we be let in on the family secrets? Shouldn't we get to know what's going on, what's planned? And guess what? We are. We are let in on the mysterious plan that God has been working towards since he created the world to reunite everything under Jesus. We've just been learning about this plan as we've uh, looked at Revelation. And at its end, we find Jesus ruling a remade universe here in Revelations 22, 3, we see Jesus on the throne of the Lamb. Sorry, the Lamb on the throne of God. This, this destiny, it's not just a fun fact. And by the way, we're on the throne with Jesus. This is not some knowledge that, that we keep squirreled away in some mental compartment like how to change a tyre or or how to do complex arithmetic, this knowledge should inform every single decision that we make. For example, in my personal opinion, sadly, this means that Christians are going to find it very hard to justify buying a new Ferrari, or probably even an old one. The Ferrari will soon burn, and and no amount of burnouts will outweigh the opportunity lost to use our wealth for more permanent purposes. Paul says to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so our knowledge of the destiny of the world should change the way that we live. Uh, and this, is, this, next, this next blessing is where interpretations differ. The ESV says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, as you can see there. But the ASV, the American Standard Version, says, in whom also we were made a heritage. You see, the Greek word for an inheritance can be interpreted in various ways. So either we receive an inheritance from God, presumably our salvation, or we become God's heritage, God's possession. I, I actually think we are God's heritage. It makes more sense in the context. So that's our fifth blessing. We're God's heritage. We're God's possession. Then in verse 12, as we saw earlier, God's choice of us brings him glory. And the fact 
that this choice is not merely theoretical, but it's actually present historically in the church. So the church is the historical reality of God's choice, God's inheritance. It brings God even greater glory. The mere existence of the church, God's redeemed people, brings him glory and praise. How amazing is that? So the church matters. So now we're up to the Holy Spirit. The perspective shifts a little because the Holy Spirit, his role in the work of God is much closer to us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so in this section, we see things a little more from our perspective rather than from the Father's or the Son's. The sixth blessing is the seal of the Holy Spirit. You might remember the idea of seals from the book of Revelation, and uh, we're not talking about the marine mammals here. In the New Testament, the primary meaning of a seal, especially one placed on a person, is a mark of ownership. So the Holy Spirit marks us as belonging to God, and that was the fifth blessing, remember. You'll notice in verse 13 that it's when we hear the word of truth, the gospel, and so believe in Jesus that we become God's possession. That's our part of the process. God may have chosen us from before the beginning of time, but we still need to hear the gospel and believe. And that implies that, as Jesus tells us, we need to share the gospel. And now we come to the final blessing. The Holy Spirit is also our guarantee or our earnest, as it says here, the down payment on God's investment in us. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we can be sure that we eventually come fully into God's temple, the reunited heaven and earth at the end of time. Now, we may intellectually know God's plan to make everything his temple, We may know intellectually that Jesus is going to rule over everything. But the Holy Spirit is a present, experienced reality in the now that constantly reassures us that this future is going to come true. Too often we think of our faith as based on our own intellectual strength of will or our strength of will. or We think that we can cling to God by reassuring ourselves that Jesus really lived, died and rose again in history and and therefore we can trust that Jesus is coming again. And it is important to understand and to believe these things. But we have more. We have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. He can encourage us. He can equip us. He can strengthen our faith and, and straighten our walk. Don't forget to rely on the Holy Spirit. And finally, once again, Paul ends this section with us standing before God as his inheritance and so bringing glory to God. We bring glory to God. How weird is that? So what can we take away from this complex and and deep and powerful passage? Well, first, 
we should remember that the Trinity, the three persons of God in one Godhead, are all intimately involved with us. No part of God stands off aloof, disinterested. God is deeply and uniformly loving. And second, these seven blessings should encourage us in our faith. Our faith is not just some fragile psychological phenomena. Our position with God is not precarious. Remember that we are chosen, adopted, redeemed, informed, an inheritance, sealed, and guaranteed. Given the awesome weight of all that, our Christianity should be the one thing that defines who we are, how we live, how we talk, what we do. Think about it. Our job wasn't chosen for us before the creation of the world. We aren't adopted by our friends. None of our family has knowingly and willingly laid down their life to redeem us. No scholar has informed us of the secrets of our future. No investor has bought us as their inheritance. No company has sealed us with their name, although Facebook's trying. And no government has given us the power of God in our hearts as a guarantee of our future. But God has done all of that. So let's praise his glorious name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the glorious God who deserves all our praise because you have done all these things. You have made us and you have set us apart. You've poured out these spiritual blessings on us. So Lord, we we thank you for that and we recognize that this just demonstrates what a great God you are. And we're so glad that we demonstrate that, that we show your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.